Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, today we're going to talk about a man who had some serious ups and downs in his life, but whose legacy is really quite immense. Uh, he was a humanitarian almost from birth, and his life's biggest accomplishment was founding the International Red Cross. Uh, and his name was Henri Dunant. And uh, a quick note on Henri, spelled H-E-N-R-I in the classic French way, versus spelled more the Americanized way, like Henry with a Y at the end. Uh, everything I've heard pronunciation-wise says Henri French way, but it seems that if you look at the written mentions of him, they favor the Y way. So we will use the Y spelling in the episode title, but we will be pronouncing it the French way. <laughs> Not to be confusing at all. Correct. And his his original name was uh, actually hyphenated, and I have seen that written both with the Y. He was originally Jean-Henri, Jean and I've seen that written both with the Y and the I. So I don't know if that's just like, because he is a famous person throughout the world, people have, for some reason, adopted the... Um, the the English speaking world's version of it because that even shows up in other foreign languages like foreign language uh you know articles about him I'm not sure why that is the case but in any case we're writing it with the but <laughs> using the French pronunciation right out of the gate just to confuse you Jean Henri Dunant was born in Geneva Switzerland on May 8, 1828 into a wealthy family and he was the first of five children. His siblings were Sophie-Anne, born in 1829, Daniel, born in 1831, Marie, born in 1833, and Pierre-Louis, born in 1834. And his Calvinist parents, Antoinette and Jean-Jacques Dunant, were deeply religious, and they were also deeply dedicated to humanitarian causes and to bettering their community. So, for example, when Henri was eight, his father took him to visit prisons in Marseille and Toulon so that his son might see the suffering there. And he frequently accompanied his mother as well on regular visits that she made to the ailing and the poor to offer aid. As a young man, he was active in both religious and charitable causes, and he was a member of a group that offered both religious and material comforts to the poor called League of Alms. He participated in a popular movement to unite Christians and Jews, and he regularly visited city prisons to participate in the reformation of incarcerated people there. And in his 20s, Henri began serving full-time as a member of the Young Men's Christian Association. That is right, that's the YMCA, which was actually founded in Geneva, Switzerland, although it went by a couple of different names. Uh, Dunant's work with the YMCA required that he travel a great deal as a, a young man in Holland, France, and Belgium. In terms of his career, Dunant began his professional life in 1849 as a banking apprentice after he left secondary school because he wasn't really doing very well there. Four years later, in 1853, he was promoted to a management position of the Compagnie Genevois de Colonie Suisse de Cetif. This was a Swiss settlement company headquartered in Algiers that set that established colonies by setting up villages and farms and enticing colonists to move there and form communities. He worked in Sicily and North Africa during this time. 
And after four years of work with this settlement firm, he actually wrote a book about his observations as a traveler in North Africa titled Notice sur la Régence de Tunis, uh, or An Account of the Tunisian Regency. And it included a chapter that was titled Slavery Among the Mohammedans and in the United States of America. And that particular chapter would later be republished as a standalone document. Dunant next moved into a new position. He created a new company, financial and industrial company of Mongemilla Mills, and named himself as its president. This company, like his previous job, was focused on settlements in Algeria. Dunant started work on a wheat mill there, but needed to obtain water rights if he was going to be able to successfully develop the large land parcel that the mill was part of. His initial efforts to obtain the proper paperwork were fruitless. Clearly unafraid of making any bold moves, he decided to go directly to Napoleon III with his request. And at this point in time, Napoleon III was in the midst of commanding the French armies who were fighting alongside Italian soldiers against Austria in an effort to drive Austria's troops from Italy. So Dunant headed to the French leader's military headquarters that he had set up near Solferino, Italy. And it was because of this desire to plead his case for water rights that on June 24th, 1859, when he was 31 years old, Dunant witnessed the Battle of Solferino, which has been called one of the bloodiest battles of the 19th century. And seeing that battle play out, claiming so many lives and leaving so many wounded, Dunant was inspired to action. As the number of medical emergencies quickly outpaced the military staff on hand's ability to handle them, Dunant created an emergency aid service to assist wounded Austrian and French soldiers. Local women serving as nurses to the injured adopted a slogan for this impromptu relief group, Tutti Fratelli, meaning all brothers. His time in Solferino completely shifted Dunant's focus. His business affairs at that point became secondary to his desire to address the issue of suffering in wars. Several years after the battle, in 1862, he published a book about the battle and his work in the aftermath uh, in a memoir called Un Souvenir de Solferino. He had been working on this book since 1860, and in it, he writes about three things. First, he describes the battle itself in pretty graphic detail. Second, he describes the aftermath of the battle and how horrifying it was and how the wounded were cared for in the nearby towns of, as, of Castiglione, as well as in other small villages. And one thing that stands out in this section is the sheer numbers of wounded that townspeople were scrambling to assist. Dunant wrote in his book that the town of Brescia, which had a population of 40,000, took in 30,000 wounded, converting almost every available building into makeshift hospitals. This is not, however, entirely accurate. And in uh, current reprints of his book, they usually notate this. Uh, later counts actually put the wounded just under 20,000 men, but th- that's still a rather incredible number. And in that particular area, there were only 140 doctors to manage all of those injured people. In that third section, he makes the case for all countries to have voluntary relief societies and to provide assistance and, when possible, to prevent suffering during both wartime and times of peace and that these societies should dispense with aid without any concern for creed or race. 
And his idea suggested a governing board for each nation's separate relief society that would be made up of the nation's leaders. And he also stressed the need for volunteerism to be promoted as something everyone should participate in and the need to establish training systems so that every volunteer would have the knowledge to care for wounded both on the battlefield and after they were removed from the active battlefield right through to their recovery. In addition to making the case for assistance societies, Henri Dunant also proposed the concept of an international agreement regarding how people who were wounded during a war should be treated. And next up, we're going to discuss how Dunant's writing catalyzed almost immediate action. But first, we will pause for a little sponsor break. So in response to the writing that Dunant had done about his time at Solferino, the Geneva Society for Public Welfare established a five-man committee on February 7th, 1863, to make a dedicated effort to investigate the possibility of making Dunant's ideas a reality. And Dunant, we should mention, was on that five-man committee. He served as secretary. Also included were Guillaume-Henri Dufour, who was a Swiss general and topographer who presided over the, the committee, Gustave Monnier, a Swiss legal theorist and philanthropist, Dr. Louis Appia, a surgeon specializing in military medicine, and Dr. Théodore Monoir, also a surgeon. This committee decided that the best plan of action was to assemble an international conference to make concrete plans for aid. And for the next several months, Dunant, on his own dime, visited numerous governments, primarily in Europe, with the goal of of obtaining promises of participation for each of them. Yeah, it's worth noting again that he was paying for his own travel because money is going to come up later. Uh, so just a year after the publication of his book, Dunant, as part of the group assembled by the Geneva Society for Public Welfare, founded the International Committee for Relief of the Wounded when the delegates assembled from October 26th to 29th of 1863. So this would eventually become the International Committee of the Red Cross. Over the course of these four days, the committee members discussed all the issues at hand, and in addition to the five men who we named earlier, representatives from philanthropic organizations in 16 nations, including France, Austria, Prussia, Spain, and Great Britain, attended. And the assembly agreed on the need for several action items. These included the creation of relief societies in every country, the adoption of a universal armband to identify relief personnel, and neutrality for the wounded medical personnel, hospitals, and ambulances. And that final issue of neutrality was added at the last minute by Dunant. And the conference asked the various governments represented there to give their support and protection to these resolutions. On August 22nd, 1864, a treaty was signed by 12 nations at a diplomatic conference. That treaty established official intent to create relief societies, guaranteed neutrality to medical assistance personnel, expedited the handling of supplies needed by those personnel, and instituted an easy-to-identify emblem for them to use, which was a red cross on a white background. This treaty, of course, was the first Geneva Convention. And the adoption of that universal symbol 
we really can't understate. It was actually incredibly important because prior to using the Red Cross armband for all medical and assistance personnel, different countries had been using different colors and symbols on their armbands to designate caregivers. And this caused a great deal of confusion on the battlefield because enemy troops usually did not know the color coding system that their opponent might be using. And so it was very difficult for anyone involved to identify active combatants versus medical helpers. Of note in all of this, though, is a point about Dunant's involvement and activity within the Committee of Five, as that became nicknamed. Dunant, who was so comfortable and eloquent making his case to encourage heads of state to participate in the relief movement, was pretty low-key when dealing with the other four men, due in part to very large personalities that were in play among the other members, He took something of a backseat in these conferences, despite the fact that he had been the person who initiated these ideas and catalyzed the conferences happening in the first place. Yeah, he kind of gets pushed to the background in most of those dealings, uh, which is kind of fascinating because it really was all his idea. And unfortunately, while he had been so busy in these humanitarian and and service uh, efforts to others, Dunant had not been taking care of his own personal affairs. He was still president of the financial and industrial company of Mons Gemilla Mills, and that grant of water rights that led him to Solferino and catalyzed all of this humanitarian work had never materialized. And while Dunal had been very busy meeting with the leaders of Europe, the duties of his North African company that he had delegated to others had been handled really poorly. He lost all of his money, and moreover, most of his friends who had been invested in the business, as well as a lot of family members. So in 1867, he left Geneva completely embarrassed and bankrupt. This is really a scandal, and due to the scandal, uh, and his basically becoming a social pariah in Geneva, he resigned his post as secretary with the Red Cross and was expelled from the society even as a member. He carried a debt of nearly one million Swiss francs when he declared bankruptcy, and his businesses were liquidated to try to pay his creditors. When he first left Switzerland in 1867, he initially traveled to Paris, where he would often sleep outdoors because he had no place to live. And he made a little money here and there working as a journalist just to try to keep himself fed. Eventually, he was actually invited to the Palais de Tuileries by Empress Eugenie. And together, Dunant and the Empress worked on expanding the Red Cross in France and its mission. So remember, there's the International Committee, and then each country has their own uh, sort of chapters. And so uh, while he was no longer part of Switzerland effort, he was still in this way involved in the Red Cross as a concept. And he was made an honorary member of the Red Cross societies of several other countries, including Austria, Holland, Prussia, and Spain. This work with uh, Empress Eugenie first helped get the Geneva Convention wartime protections extended to naval personnel. He also worked on widening the scope of the Red Cross to include peacetime relief efforts for instances of natural disaster. And when the 1870 Franco-Prussian War happened, Dunant worked with the many wounded brought to Paris. And during this time, he also came up with the idea that soldiers should wear some sort of badge at all times. So if they died in combat, they could be easily identified. This is an early precursor concept to the dog tag. After the war ended in May of 1871, he traveled to London and he called for another conference in 1872. This one called... Alliance Universelle de l'Ordre et de la Civilisation. 
This gathering was intended to examine the issue of international prisoners of war and how they should be handled. He also wanted to put forth a plan for legal arbitration of international conflicts rather than military action. And so these plans were met with mixed levels of enthusiasm. They would, however, decades later, become part of the Third Geneva Convention. Yeah, that idea of prisoners of war became very important later. But at the time, uh, due to some some grudges and infighting, that kind of all fell apart. Uh, but it does speak volumes that even... As this man was organizing the 1872 conference, he was destitute. Sometimes he was being helped by friends, sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, living on the street. But he was still meeting it with heads of state, even though there were plenty of times when he could barely find a meal. In February of 1875, the writings that Dunant had published about slavery inspired an international gathering in London aimed at abolishing the slave trade, which at that point had some nations had individually abolished, but this was a greater effort. Again, even as he was struggling personally, he initiated this gathering. His itinerant life was really starting to take a toll on his health, though. And Henri kind of ducked out of the public eye after that abolitionist gathering, and we'll discuss a rather nomadic period in his life right after we pause once again for a sponsor break. So uh, sometime later in 1875, after that abolitionist gathering, Henri Dunant basically vanished from society. And for a while, he wandered. He never stayed in any one place for long. And he traveled entirely on foot, uh, traveling great distances. He made his way through Germany, Italy, and Alsace, sometimes aided by friends or charitable organizations to get by. But eventually he did settle down in the village of Haydn, Switzerland in 1887. And this happened primarily because his health really took a downturn while he happened to be traveling through there and traveling anymore became really difficult. In 1890, one of the other other citizens of Haydn, a man named Wilhelm Sondreiger, who uh, realized who do not was, excitedly started spreading the word that this great humanitarian was indeed alive and well, but nobody really seemed to care very much at that point. Uh, two years after Sonderegger's revelation, Henri's health further declined, and at this point he was moved into the village hospice. And he would live there for the next 18 years, the remainder of his life, in room 12. Although the, although his, quote, discovery in 1890 had kind of sputtered, in 1895, another person, this one a journalist named George Baumberger, felt compelled to announce to the world that the founder of the Red Cross was living in Haydn. He wrote an article about Henri Dunant, the man who had worked to save so many lives, only to find himself destitute and confined to a hospice. And whether attitudes had changed in that five years since 1890 and the first time that someone tried to bring attention to the fact that Dunant was there in Haydn, or if the situation of Dunant's failing health really started to tug at the public's heartstrings, this time around, that story uh, of his life actually took off. And the article that Baumberger wrote was reprinted in papers throughout Europe. And once again, Dunant was lauded for his life's work. Greetings and offers of assistance arrived from old friends all the way up to Pope Leo XIII, and he was given a lifetime pension by Empress Consort of Russia Maria Fyodorovna. Along with the praise came awards and prizes. Both the Medical Congress of Moscow and the Swiss Confederation awarded him prizes for his life's work, but he remained in the hospice, spending none of the money and insisting that he had everything he needed. 
And of course, most notable among Dunant's accolades was winning the first Nobel Peace Prize, which was awarded jointly to Dunant and French economist Frédéric Passy in 1901. Dunant's health was too poor at this point for him to travel to the award ceremony, so the medal and the prize money were sent to him, along with a message from the International Committee of the Red Cross, which read, quote, There is no man who more deserves this honor, for it was you, 40 years ago, who set on foot the International Organization for the Relief of the Wounded on the Battlefield. Without you, the Red Cross, the supreme humanitarian achievement of the 19th century, would probably never have been undertaken. There was, prior to the Nobel being awarded to Dunant, an effort on the part of Gustave Mounier to have an, have the International Committee of the Red Cross nominated rather than Dunant himself. He had successfully made this move prior with other prizes, but it didn't work in this case. In later years, the Red Cross as an organization would win the Nobel Prize, however. Yeah, that kind of ties back into that whole issue that we mentioned earlier where he really was not the dominant personality in that committee and he kind of got pushed out. This was sort of more of the same thing going on. Uh, and when Junot died on October 30th of 1910 in the Haydn hospice, there was no big funeral. Uh, his final wish was to be carried to his grave simply, quote, like a dog. Uh, which I don't think is is quite the negative that we would associate with it, but merely he didn't want any fuss made over him. And he was interred in Zurich on November 2nd. The money from the Nobel Prize and the other awards that he earned in the later years of his life, uh, he remained a humanitarian to the very end. He bequeathed some of the money to his caregivers, and he also set up a, a provision for a permanent bed in the hospital at Haydn that was to be used to care for the village poor. He donated the remainder of his estate to various charities in Switzerland and Norway. And as for Dunant's book, A Memory of Solferino, it has, according to the Red Cross, quote, been translated into so many languages and reprinted so many times that it is difficult to know how many versions exist throughout the world. Today, the Red Cross is the world's largest humanitarian network operating in 150 different countries. And his birthday, May 8th, is now celebrated as World Red Cross Day. And the hospice where Dunant spent his final years now houses the Henri Dunant Museum, which features a permanent exhibition on his life, as well as special exhibitions related to Dunant's work. Like, I think right now they're, they're either have started or are about to open one that is about, um, the women's contributions to the relief efforts, uh, because he wrote very kindly about women. I have to point out, particularly after his, uh, his experience in Solferino, where so many of the village women just jumped in as nurses and did all kinds of hard work. They had never been trained or prepared to do. So, uh, yeah, they do a lot of cool stuff. Uh, we should point out because, <laughs> because this is, Mentioning so much of the Red Cross that we are talking specifically when we talk about Dunant, uh, and, and the awards that the Red Cross won as a consequence of his work, uh, about the International Committee of the Red Cross versus all of the subcommittees that are held at the, the separate nation level. Right. Right. So there have been very public problems in some cases yeah. that are are still being debated but this is sort of the separate story apart from right. that right i think i think just because you and i are american we can we're probably most familiar with like the recent criticisms ab- about basically not knowing so much how the american red cross has spent relief money and a lack of transparency 
in that, which I, has been recent enough and big enough news that I would feel remiss. Yeah. <laughs> not, dis- not making the distinction that we are talking about the founding of the International Committee, not specifically the American Red Cross in operations today. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that is the story of Henri Dunant, who is, uh, sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of sad in some ways, but also sort of wonderful uh, and a little inspiring. Well, and I didn't realize that, like, I didn't realize that the uh, use of dog tags was nearly that recent. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it was really World War One where an actual metal dog tag first came into play. Don't quote me on that. I'm literally pulling that from hazy memory. But yeah, it really wasn't going on consistently before then. So you can imagine how difficult it would be to sort out who was who on a battlefield. Uh, and it, it seems painfully obvious once I read it, but I had not thought about uh, the lack of an international consistency in identifying relief personnel and how right. confusing that must have made any given situation. Well, in setting international standards about... uh having during times of war as especially like medical personnel are supposed to be exempt from, right. from being targets. Right. Yeah. Or at least that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. In theory, that is how it doesn't always play out that way, but that is the, the theoretical. I heard you have some listener mail. I do. So, so because uh we have just passed the holidays and because I was out of the office for a lot of that, I went on a lovely vacation and then uh, I was back, but mostly teleworking. So I wasn't in the physical office. So I came back to loads and loads of gifts, which was lovely uh, because our listeners are amazing. And so I wanted to talk about two of them because Tracy hasn't seen them. So it's kind of like gift show and tell for me, too. So uh the first one is from our listener, Melissa. She says, hi, Holly and Tracy. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I wanted to send you both uh, the ornaments that I make for the Maker's Mark Distillery. I love your show, and I often listen when I'm dipping the ornaments in the red wax. You both keep me entertained. Thank you for being amazing. Love, Melissa. So these are the cutest little things. There is like a little, um, you know, ball ornament, but it looks like it it uh, borrows from Maker's the Maker's Mark bottling in that it has these cute little scrolls within it, like shavings. And then the whole thing is sealed with wax, like a bottle of Maker's Mark would be. And it is adorable. And we each got one. Uh, I kind of want to have a year-round tree for stuff like that. The second one is going to make Tracy chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Uh, <laughs> it is from uh, our listener, Kristen. And she writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, happy holidays. I'm a longtime listener from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I have relatives there, so yay. Uh, and instantly thought of the enclosed gift when you mentioned the mitten the other day. We love our hand shaped, we love our land shaped like a hand. For if nothing else, it's an easy map. Thank you so much for all you do. I look forward to every episode. And what she sent us, Tracy, are these awesome, uh, window stickers, or you could put them on a laptop. Can you see it? And it says smitten with the mitten. And it is a lovely little graphic of Michigan and how it does indeed resemble a mission, a a mitten, not a mission. Well, and uh, after our whole uh, number of episodes talked about Michigan and the mitten came out there, there's a whole bit on a recent ish welcome to night, night veil about Michigan, except he keeps saying Michigan. And then pronouncing mitten in the very uh, 
the the very enunciated way that words like kitten and mitten are pronounced on <laughs> Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, yeah, so those are two of the lovely gifts we've gotten. I will never be able to get through all of them and mention them all on air because it would take us into next Christmas, I think. But thank you so, so much for thinking of us. It's such a, a delight. I always say it, but I can't stress it enough. It is a delight and an honor that people would take time out of their lives, particularly during the very busy holiday season, to send us stuff. Yeah. It's just very heartwarming and lovely. Uh, so thank you. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Missed in History, at Facebook.com slash Missed in History, on Instagram is at Missed in History, and on Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. We're also at Missed in History.tumblr.com. If you would like to uh, learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks. Type in the words Red Cross. You'll get all kinds of information you can look at. If you would like to visit us online, you can do that at MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as a full archive of every episode that has ever existed, all the way back to the very short ones in the beginning, long before Tracy and I were ever involved. Uh, so we hope you do. Come and visit us online at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey.